0: Welcome to Carbon Times, as the global drive towards creating a more sustainable world for us all continues to gain pace. Our goal is to create interesting content where we will speak to people from across all sectors on what can drive sustainability in everything that we do. We are inviting interesting guests along to talk to us about their experiences and what they are doing to share knowledge, experience, innovation and ambitions. As ever, we want to get everybody talking we all have a responsibility to create a more sustainable world. In the next 30 years, the world's population is gonna grow to 9.7 billion people. That's two billion people more than we currently have on the face of the planet. And in order to feed those people, the world needs to produce 50% more food than it is currently capable of producing. What's more, over the last 40 years, we've lost 33% of our farmland due to the expansion of our cities and due to things like climate change. Humanity has a crisis coming fast towards it and the deadline to fix the problem is about 2050. How do we feed the world's population without increasing our impact on the planet? Welcome back to the Carbon Times podcast. Today we'd like to be joined by Molly from Albotham. Albotham are developing glass coatings that reversibly transition from transparent to white to reduce solar gain in hot weather. All very interesting stuff. Welcome Molly, how are you?
1: Hi Paul, yeah, thank you. I'm great, how are you?
0: Very good, very good. Would you just introduce yourself to our listeners? Give them a little bit about your background and how you've got to where you are today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Molly Allington and I'm the CEO and co-founder at Alba So we're a relatively new startup company. We spun out of the University of Bristol about 18 months ago. My background is in chemistry, which is how I got involved in working with the technology and decided to start Alba with my co-founder.
0: Amazing. So tell us a bit about AlbaTherm then. I've given a very brief introduction, which doesn't really tell us anything, but definitely got me interested in learning a lot more about what you guys do. So in a nutshell, what is it?
1: So the main mission of AlbaTherm is to change the way that we do cooling. So in buildings, the main way that we cool at the moment is using air conditioning, which is incredibly bad for the environment. Air conditioning at the moment uses about 10% of global electricity. And by 2060, it's likely that we'll be using more energy for cooling than for heating. So our technology allows buildings to regulate their own temperatures and doesn't require any electrical input. So we are developing retrofit coatings for windows that transition from transparent to white as they heat up. So this reflects the way the heat reduces solar gain in hot weather while kind of allowing more of the natural light and the natural warming through when it cools down again.
0: That's a very, very interesting proposition and a very interesting position to be in. And something that's really relevant, I think, to a lot of our listeners. So, you know, we're sponsored by a real estate company and we work very closely in that space at the moment with a lot of clients looking at, the myriad of solutions that are emerging on how we might be able to remove the use of fossil fuels going forward. So it's very much aligned to the government's net zero objective that, you know, they're on the 10 point plan that was released under the current Tory government for that journey to net zero that under the decarbonisation of buildings is a key factor in there with the key statement under it saying that, you know, the idea is to improve building fabric and move away from the use of fossil fuels. So, you know, you're aiding that in a big way, I guess. So I can see a lot of global application for this. And I'd like to explore a little bit more around the technicalities of stuff, you know, coming from a building background, I think that I can probably preempt some of the cynicism and cynical questions that you've been asked along the way. So it'd be good to explore some of those, as I'm sure you've got very good answers for them. So where are you currently in the journey?
1: So we currently have a prototype coating. Our first target market is actually going to be in commercial greenhouses. So mm-hmm. windows in buildings are a huge source of inefficiency. But if you think of a greenhouse, it's essentially one big window. And kind of keeping the temperatures controlled in those is really a big challenge. So our product is working. It, we're trialing it on a research greenhouse at the moment to see if we can keep the plants cool, but maximize the light that they need for photosynthesis. So helping out crop yields.
0: That was going to be one of my questions around that must be quite a difficult balance to get between the transitioning away from transparent into a white coating and the amount of light that lets through. So, have you got statistics around what the difference is?
1: So, at the moment, it's not quite where we'd like it to be. So, mm-hmm. we kind of have about a 10% change in light transmission in our prototype. But we want to get that up to about 50% so we want it to go from completely transparent up to about 50% shading so right now there's a little bit of a change but even that little bit of a change we're hoping will make a really huge difference and we're trialing our products alongside some competitors in the greenhouses and we're finding that we're letting in about 17% more light on average
0: so in terms of when you were engaging people around the pilot process so I guess there's always a bit there. It's a little bit of a sales pitch to one degree, isn't it? That you're trying to get people on board and to embrace it. What are your key messages around this? Aside from you know the sort of energy saving bit and moving into that trial and saying, we think this is great for the greenhouses. What are the key messages there under that pilot scheme or the key outcomes?
1: I think the biggest thing, so the way that greenhouses do at the moment is using shade paint, which are very simple chalk-based white paints. And every year, in about April time, they spray these onto the roof of the greenhouse, so the roof turns is white all year round, and then they take them off in October. So that blocks a lot of light year round, and it's also a big hassle, time-consuming, expensive process to do every year twice. So our product can be left up for multiple years, and that's something that really resonates with farmers. To kind of save them time, particularly with new health and safety regulations, actually getting up onto the roof of the greenhouse is becoming a lot more difficult.
0: In terms of agriculture, getting a bit more focus from a health and safety perspective than they've ever had before.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think new greenhouse design makes a big difference. So kind of 10, 20 years ago, they were a lot lot shorter. Now they can be kind of up to 20 metres high you're getting someone up onto a glass roof. It doesn't seem very safe. It's kind of a miracle they were allowing people to do it before, but now there's a lot more regulations required and you kind of have to invest in better equipment to send robots up there, for example, or drones instead of sending a person up there. So the cost associated has gone up a lot.
0: So this is very much around, especially in that environment, I can imagine in the agricultural environment, it would be quite an important part because I think agriculture is one of those industries that has probably quite a long way to go around the whole decarbonisation bit. And it's really difficult for them. So for this type of product, which is a relatively quick win for them, really, and I guess very visible as well.
1: Mm, Yeah, it's one of the, the big reasons that we started with the greenhouse space, actually, because we, you know, we could have gone into greenhouses or buildings, we decided to start with greenhouses first. One of the biggest kind of contributors to emissions there actually is around the productivity so the kind of the set energy use per land is roughly about the same for a greenhouse so anything you can do to increase the productivity for that same space is going to make a massive difference to carbon emissions kind of per kilo of fruit or veg so that's where we're trying to make a big difference.
0: So that's really interesting in itself, the fact that steps like this can actually you know, help in that overall supply chain piece by being able to demonstrate it's a lower carbon um, product in the first instance, which in turn makes it attractive in a lot of ways to supermarkets and to other aspects.
1: Yeah, especially with, I mean, distribution channels have been so affected. It's really hard for a lot of the growers in the UK say import young plants from abroad, from the EU. That's a lot harder. So I think being able to produce more with locally and always going to help with you know reducing air miles, improving resilience and kind of creating that consistent supply to supermarkets.
0: It's amazing how once you start to unpick one aspect of any of these products that we talk to anyone about that's got you know, heavy sustainability angles, that it just in turn becomes massive because it demonstrates really well that everything we do in this space is so intrinsically interlinked.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's so cool. It's like one of the most interesting parts about the job that when you start kind of systems thinking, instead of just thinking down one route, it kind of snowballs into you know, positive impacts all around.
0: It's very fascinating in terms of how it goes. A couple of other kind of practical things. So you'd always get, again, when I'm talking about the cynics or those people maybe in my generation and beyond that, you know, we've been in construction for years, seen loads of challenges and applying film to windows. Sometimes it has been a safety issue or has caused some negative impact on the glass. So what's the kind of consideration around that piece?
1: Yeah, it's definitely a big consideration, one we're still working through. I think there's a couple of ways we would want to package the product for the buildings market that'd be different for greenhouses. We would most likely either work with, say, a glass manufacturer to embed the coatings into the glass. So that would be for kind of new buildings only unless you were doing a really big refurb project. But it would allow that a lot easier kind of access to the technology And then the other one, which is the more retrofit product, is actually we can put our additives into a plastic film that can be stuck on the inside of the building. So really easy for people to kind of add in, take away, do themselves, and you don't need to build a huge scaffold or kind of remove windows and start knocking things around.
0: That's a really good point and a really good way of sort of tackling another challenge, which is when we start to think about carbon again in its entirety is that you know take a heating system as a very simple example you know people might think changing the heating system from gas to electric is the right thing to do because you can get renewable energy for your electric you can't for your gas you know you've moved away from fossil fuels but the actual carbon created by removing the existing infrastructure disposing of that manufacturing new equipment bringing it to site, installing it, you know, all of that kind of overall process. It's where I think as an industry, we must get better going forward in that balance and making sure all of those balances are correct.
1: Yeah, I definitely think, yeah, retrofitting and refurbing buildings is the way to go really to make the most sustainable things. There's only so many new buildings we can put up with the space that we've got. I think the stat is that 85% of buildings in the UK Will still be standing in 2050 and about 50% globally. So really all of those buildings, the kind of pre the last few years are going to be outdated in terms of energy efficiency very quickly. So we do need economical, sustainable ways to bring those up to modern standards.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think when you think about the whole world of carbon as a journey, I guess there's one of those, you know, from the, when you have the wider conversations around coal-fired power stations as an example and where you know there are developing countries in the world that are utilizing that to maximize their ability to create you know sort of the world that we're in in a lot of western society already because we went through that kind of industrial phase 100 years ago you know so we're in a position to be able to decarbonize that functionality because of how far forward we are you know that whole conversation that you have around those but a problem that we have in the uk that doesn't exist in all the other countries well it doesn't a lot of western european countries i guess is the age of our stock and the fact mm-hmm. that you know like you quite rightly say that a huge percentage of the stock that we have today commercial buildings for example the number's 80 percent for commercial buildings they'll still be in use in 2050 so you know that's retrofit thing can't be you know can't be highlighted
1: mm, yeah With the heritage buildings and everything as well, especially, I mean, walking around London, all of the big buildings are hundreds of years old and that they're beautiful and you wouldn't really want to get rid of that piece of history. So the challenge really is bringing them into the modern era while kind of preserving that wonderful history.
0: And especially with, you know, glazing being a huge part of what buildings are made out of nowadays, you know, Mm -hmm. it's the most cost effective way to build a tall building in that sense is a glazed building, you know. So having something that is easy to access, easy to use and sustainable, I think is a fantastic thing, you know, and it's, again, it's part of that journey, you know, making sure the home requires less energy or the commercial property, you know, whatever it might be. That's really interesting. So throughout the pilot process, what type of people are involved? Who's looking at you, listening to you? And wanting to know the outcome?
1: So, at the moment, we're mainly working with end users in the greenhouse space, so growers themselves. We're also talking to glass manufacturers, paint manufacturers who can kind of support, help, you know, joint develop the products, bring them to market, and kind of we can use their existing sales distribution networks when we do launch the product to market. For the building space, we're still in a slightly earlier phase. We're kind of doing market research. So, talking to kind of contractors, architects, trying to spec out the products and see what kind of features people would want.
0: Brilliant. Amazing. Have you had to go through the BRE or anyone like that in terms of, I don't suppose you have yet, have you to any significant degree?
1: Not just yet. No. So there's very few regulations just around the paint for kind of greenhouse use. Buildings there obviously is going to be a huge amount more. I think fire safety, if the coatings are on the outside of the building will be a huge problem. So, yeah, we don't anticipate it being a problem with our technology, but you still have to go through all the checks and everything.
0: Yeah, it will become, I think it will become a lot more, well, I think it will generate a lot more talk and a lot more interest when you start Mm -hmm. to move into that space because... Yeah, you know, like we work closely with the BRE on some parts and, you know, having previous experience of having to go to them and seek approval for building parts and building, you know, specific building aspects of design that are needed through, you know, sort of emergency circumstances or things that might have happened. So, yeah, I think that will be a really good journey for you as an organisation. I think that would be really cool. Is there a simple way of explaining how it works?
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. There's not too much I can say about exactly what goes into the product but i think that the concept of it one of the things i love about it is that it is very simple so Mm -hmm. you just get this change in opacity goes to white we can control that by changing the formulation of the coating so we can make the transitions happen anywhere from zero degrees all the way up to 45 to pretty close kind of one degree accuracy and we can create a gradual or a kind of step sudden change transition as well
0: that's amazing Really yeah. good. I would imagine you're invited to talk about this quite frequently.
1: Every now and then, yeah. I haven't done one in a little while, but I've done a couple of podcasts before.
0: And how do you feel generally? I mean, I'm, you know, I'm sure it comes across straight away that I'm fascinated by what you're doing and will keep a close eye on it, especially from an industry perspective. We're working, you know, we're working with clients all across the country on coming up with innovative, creative ways of being able to minimize the amount of energy they need to utilize going forward. So it's generally the feedback feels the same, does it?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think there's definitely a lot more interest in the product now than when we first started coming up with the idea a few years ago, sort of three or four years ago when we were talking to people. It might be the way that we're talking about it has changed, but I think the bigger issues are really at the forefront now. And we've noticed a big uptake, particularly with the heat waves we've been having over the last year, big uptake in people really understanding the need and the value of the product.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. The industry has changed dramatically in the last three years, even, you know, the turn towards, I think, maybe the pandemic came at an opportune moment where it gave people the opportunity to sit down and actually, in earnest, think about all the things that we've been trying to achieve as an industry, as we look at decarbonisation, because the agenda has definitely ramped up significantly in that period. And we're just seeing more and more activity and more and more, you know, we're asked more and more questions all the time.
1: Mm, Yeah, that's interesting, especially about the pandemic. I hadn't really thought about it in that way, but I guess it was a big time for everyone to reflect on what are we doing? Where are we going? Mm.
0: At the time I was with, you know, a large consultancy firm. And I think it definitely did just that. It gave us the opportunity to, you know, we remained very busy during that period and, you know, trying to help our clients through a very difficult time. You know, fancy being, you know, 25% through a major infrastructure project and then suddenly you've got no one to work on it. You know, is all of those bits. And being able to manage that through was really important. But I definitely noticed the conversation changing and people really starting to think about rather than it being part of the conversation and moving along in that way, that it was, the conversation was actually getting action points out of it. And we were moving the conversation further forward, which I, you know, even in the last 12 months is so much further forward than it was. So what does the next few years look like? I guess I'd like to explore a couple of things really, like as you go through the pilot process, what does the next kind of two to three years look like? But then how does that transition into your 10 year vision around it?
1: The biggest, I would say, short-term challenge in the next two or three years is probably the product development. So we still have quite an early stage prototype. You know, We've proved the concept of it, but getting it to really hit all the specifications for the market is going to be a big challenge, particularly for buildings with the durability and the aesthetics needing to be quite a lot higher than what we have at the moment. Once we've kind of seen the product hit the market, We have a lot of potential places we could go with it, both kind of in terms of application and geographies. I think that the product actually will work a lot better in the kind of Middle East and the Far East. It's Mm. something that we don't really do that much cooling just here in the UK yet. Heating is more of a concern. So being able to kind of expand it across the globe and manage that expansion is the biggest challenge over the next decade.
0: It's a really good challenge to have though, right? You must be very (laughs) excited about that.
1: Yeah, it's very cool. I do like the opportunities for travel that I've got to do kind of throughout my job.
0: It's really good. How many are in the team at the moment?
1: There's just four of us at the moment. So there's myself, my co-founder and CTO. And then we have one on the research side and we have a sales and marketing intern as well.
0: Excellent. Just a little bit about them then. So attracting those two new positions, was that easy? Or did you find people a bit hard to connect to the vision or that they were really excited about the fact that it's something that they can actually relate to and want to see succeed?
1: So hiring our first team member was definitely a challenge, just less so on kind of convincing people of the vision, but finding just the right person. So that was our kind of lead researcher And the person that we hired was the very last person to apply. And up until that point, we were kind of like tossing up between a few candidates that had most of the skills that we wanted, but maybe just not quite. So I think we were very, very lucky with that.
0: Do you think part of their attraction to you is the overall journey or do you feel they just felt like they wanted a new role sort of thing?
1: I think so. I think the biggest thing is probably the challenge, even, you know, actually being able to see that there's a lot to be done here and this isn't a fully formed company just yet is quite exciting for people. And those are the kind of people that we really want to attract people that can do things for themselves, drive stuff forward and really kind of create alongside us.
0: Amazing. That's really good. So what do you think you need going forward? I mean, this is, you know, you've got a mini platform here. Mm -hmm. Some people around the small part of the world that we do actually reach out to are, you know, we normally hit about 30 odd countries. So, you know, it's a global application of what you're talking about. What do you need if people want to know more about you? How do they get hold of you? And what kind of assistance do you need? What do you want people to reach out and tell you?
1: So we are looking for investment at the moment. I think resources is the biggest thing holding us back. So because we're such a small team, we really can't make progress that quickly with the product. And we want to be able to see it hit the market as soon as possible, start kind of making impacts as soon as possible. So we're always looking for people that are willing to invest, particularly if they work in the space and kind of have those market connections alongside of it. We'd love to get some kind of buildings, owners, property owners on board to do pilot trials as well. Really
0: interesting. Well, you know, we would hope that people listening out there might connect with it, look at what you're doing. And, and where's the best place for people to find more information about you?
1: So they can get in contact through our website. So it's www.albatherm.com. And then there's a get in touch page, which will send an email directly to us.
0: Great. And I suppose with the fact there's only four of you, someone's always on the end of those emails, Mm
1: -hmm. right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's usually me that picks them up. So you kind of get a direct line straight to me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Which is a rarity when you get these kind of things often. So normally at this stage, I would ask our guest that if they had the opportunity to have lunch with the prime minister, then what influence would they like to leave with? But I think with you, I'm going to, if you don't mind, slightly tailor that question because I think rather than it being what sphere of influence of sustainability would you like the prime minister to take away from them? I think more importantly in these circumstances, if you had that opportunity, how can the prime minister help organisations like yourself that have got something that's potentially, you know, really game changing? How can they help?
1: Well, I mean, kind of going back to what I said earlier, I think the biggest issue for any startup is finding the funding. And especially when you're developing a new technology, there's a real balance between going out kind of too early with it, not having enough traction yet, or kind of waiting too late. So any additional support with kind of funding projects, grants, I think is probably the biggest impact that you could have.
0: Brilliant. I think also the government should be looking to do things like. So, there's a wider piece I think around this that I feel like this agenda, the sustainability agenda, links the world together like nothing has ever done before. So, from a personal experience, you know, working in big corporate organizations in the UK, you've always had, you know, you'll hear it said all the time, oh, we operate in silos. And, you know, that's probably. The corporate message I've had for 15 years, you know, every company that you work for is like, yeah, we've got a two-sided approach. We're trying to break that down and da-da-da-da. Never really happens, right? Because otherwise we wouldn't be having the same conversation for 15 years. What I found really interesting over the last few years is that the sustainability agenda connects everybody together. So those in HR, those in finance, those in operations, those in sales, those in whatever, you could appoint a sustainability lead in every one of those departments but it wouldn't be a meaningless role. It would have meaning, it would have stature and people would actually respect it, feed into it and expect it to actually achieve something, which there aren't many things that have trickled down and gone all the way through that. And I think a key to this is opening up process, opening up access to project opportunities and all those types of things, building that easy, facilitative process collaboration, I think, you know, the government has a role to play in maybe, you know, releasing task forces that are, you know, going out to organisations like yourself, connecting you with their connections in the building world and driving those conversations at a kind of policy and governmental level so they can feed back. You know, these are the challenges between the contractors and the people that are trying to supply the contractors and see if there are things, you know, through regulation and through simplification that can be done to facilitate this journey being faster, you know, than it currently is.
1: Yeah. I think that would really help because big corporate companies kind of send out tech scouts all the time looking for new technologies, but it's not something the government really gets involved in. Mm. And I think they could go along a lot of a longer way to kind of nurturing things coming up and local councils kind of work with small businesses and um, bring them on board for for collaborative projects.
0: Yeah. And also, then helping the kind of regulators at a local level understand as well, because you make a good point there around local authorities that often the kind of big global ambitions of the government do not always trickle down at local authority level. You know, or the, I mean, resources for local authorities is always a massive challenge, but the expertise they have in there or access to that expertise as well is something that's really key. You know, things like uh, something that's just popped into my head. So the difference you get around the country in terms of, One accessibility opinion and forward thinking of planners is quite astoundingly different, you know, from area to area, and it quite rightly there has to be because you know planners are there to do a lot around protecting the locality and everything else. But I think in the past there's been a propensity to move away from anything new or anything innovative because it's not the norm, and people are always you know, sort of scared of that. So I think simplifying that process and the government helping when a new innovation and a new product is available that could make a difference to helping that trickle down into ease of transition through planning and bits like that.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of the government projects, naturally, they can be quite risk averse in a way that isn't the same in kind of industry and in companies. But you do need to take those big risks. And to, you know, a lot of companies that could make a really huge potential impact will never get there because they kind of fell at some of the first hurdles and weren't able to get through those initial phases.
0: Mm, Definitely. Well, there's definitely a lot of help that I think can be provided to people like yourselves. Really interesting chat, Molly. Thank you. I'm, you know, enamored by what you guys are doing. I think it's a really, really great project. I think what you're doing has the potential to make a real difference in a world that really needs it.
1: Well, yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun.
0: Awesome. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. We'll see you next time on Carbon Times.